Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. So today I'm talking to John O'Brien, who has the most uh, marvellous backstory and now uh, what John focuses on is helping individuals and companies uh, have uh, a sense of purpose, find a sense of purpose, enact that sense of purpose. So John, uh, you're very welcome uh, to the Workplace Happiness Podcast. Um, do you want to just begin by telling us a little about uh, uh, your childhood and then your first job and then your second job and then <laughs> what you did after your second right. big job? Well, thank you, Mark. Yes, and it's great, it's great to be here and have the chance to uh, chat through around purpose and other things. Um, I am a Shropshire-born lad, so I like to call myself Shropshire lad. Grew up in the early early uh, 1960s within a family that were shopkeepers, small business people, few leisure interests, bit of property. They would never have called themselves entrepreneurs in those days. It wasn't a word that was used, but they were very mixed uh, type of local business people. Very close-knit family, but with a lot of relatives in that area and uh, went to a grammar school, which I think, like yourself, was quite, uh, was quite a big thing. I think I was only the second member of the family to go to a grammar school, which was tremendous. But I wasn't particularly academic. So uh, back then, there wasn't necessarily the expectation that everybody would go to university, and it wasn't really something that, that I was looking to do. So the idea at that time was perhaps, instead of going straight into family businesses, that I would go and get a sort of what was known as a proper job. And uh, so he was encouraged to apply to both Midlands and Lloyds Bank. And sure enough, uh, I was fortunate to get offered both of those jobs, but I remember not making the decision at all. My father made the decision that because they banked at the Midland Bank, it was best I went and worked at Lloyds, probably so I couldn't find out how much they actually had in their bank accounts. Um, but I started, you know, after school working for Lloyds Bank, very, very different to what it was today. Um, there was one sort of glorified computer that was like an adding up machine. It was a case of you started making the tea, all the managers were men, and it was Mr. This and Mr. That. So it was very, very different. And it was a great job to start out with. It was, uh, I remember actually never feeling that I'd been so wealthy. My first month's pay slip was £176, which sounds hilarious, but that was an extraordinary amount of money when I was starting. But after a couple of years there, I actually found that I wasn't particularly um, fired up about banking or retail banking. So I did make a big departure, which was to go and apply to get a commission. So I went to Santa, very fortunate to get through 
and ended up spending 10 years as an infantry officer. And that was the first sort of formative period in, in my development. So I've got to ask you, there is a bit of a difference between <laughs> retail banking and joining the army. Yeah. So what was it that prompted you to, to think about joining the army? So, well, there's two aspects, really. When I look back, uh, I was probably fairly typical of boys. I mean, I'm looking at you, Mark, I don't know, but boys of those days, we grew up on black and white films about the Second World War. I mean, it's just a reality um, check there. Um, and I used to sort of run around playing soldiers, I suppose, as a lad and making airfix kits of various things. So it had always been there. And in fact, my family nickname was General Johnny, which sounds sort of a bit funny, of course, but that was the nickname. So it was sort of there, and of course a lot of people you were growing up with had actually served. You know, they'd been in the Second World War, family, friends and people like that had, had been in the military. So it actually was something there in the background, which I think nowadays, because the army is much less, etc., although it's in the public eye, it's not necessarily something that people get a lot of exposure to. But the real thing that changed was that during my time in the bank, uh, one of the uh, sub-manager at one of the branches I worked at happened to be in the reserve forces, the Territorial Army, as it was called at the time. And he thought that I might enjoy it, and I, I did. And so I did a year, I think, prior, thinking, well, this is great fun. And actually, I was enjoying my weekends more than I was my weeks. So it was at that point, you know, I had a word with the regular commanding officer and said, you know, I'm interested. And he said, yeah, absolutely, you should go for it. And so I'd had a little inkling of what it might be through running around the fields of Shropshire um, and also some overseas exercises. Which How great. old were you then, John? So when I, when I went for my commission, I was 21. So I'd gone from 18 uh, to 21 in the bank. And those years in the bank, uh, what are your abiding memories? Very hierarchical. So I look back, and it was a business of its time, so it was very hierarchical. It wasn't so... We, we had a situation there where... The hierarchy was very much something that people, I suppose, got a sense of security from as much as anything else. I mean, actually, genuinely, my family were delighted when I got a job in, in the bank. And I think people thought, well, this is it. If he wishes to stay, he could just work his way up and be the, the branch manager. Um, so I think in those days, everybody thought this was a great job. And it was, uh, you were in nice conditions, and it was well looked after, and you got a pension and all of those things, which actually a lot of other businesses and things like that weren't able to offer. But I think that uh, it was just not, I mean, it was right for a great many people, and it was a good job, but it just wasn't quite right for the character that I had, which wanted to be a little bit more out and about and a little bit more adventurous. So, ironically, of course, <laughs> when I came out of the army, a lot of my contemporaries would always flock into the city to go into a different type of banking. That's another story. I didn't choose to do that. But I always say I've sort of sometimes lived my life the wrong way around, you know, army after banking rather than banking after army and things of that kind. And then you joined Sandhurst. Were there any mm. parallels between Sandhurst and the army and the bank? Uh, well, there's a hierarchy for obvious reasons. I mean, Sandhurst is an extraordinarily absorbing experience. So, and particularly in those days, the army was sort of of society, but very different to society in a way. It was, it was a distinct community that you went into and you embraced. And going through Sandhurst, um, not only did you have an absolute sense of what you needed to achieve, you, you needed to pass out and get that commission. That was the critical thing. It was physically and mentally very demanding, but it was educating you all the time. You know, it was a total education, every little aspect from 
polishing your kit to getting you fit to teaching you tactics, teamwork and leadership. I think that the distinction between, so beyond the hierarchical aspect, and most of us, I think in those days anyway, we're used to being fairly, um, you know, we've grown up in hierarchical sort of high degree of deference and things of that kind. That was not unusual. It wasn't too much of a contrast. The contrast really just the fact that it's just full on. I mean, if you imagine banks used to close at 3.30, you'd be home at sort of 5. You didn't, you didn't open on Saturdays. So, we kept, you know, it was entirely quite, quite a smart job in the bank. Uh, well, the army, you're on all the time. And so Sandhurst, but it, you're all together. You're all young men. In those days, we were all young men between the age of 19 and 20, 1921. And uh, you just muck in. It was a tremendous experience. And were you happy in the army? Absolutely. So yeah. what made you happy? There's no doubt looking back, I wouldn't have used this language, but it was the clear sense of purpose and everything associated with that purpose. So when you look at it in terms of being clear in terms of what the job you're being asked to do, the fact that you are invested in, in terms of your training and development and all of that sort of stuff, to be feel very confident that you can do that job. So you have that confidence in your own ability having been trained in that way. You have a supreme confidence in those around you. So training your soldiers, being a part of units that have a pride, that have a clarity of what their role is, etc., means that uh, you're, you're absolutely confident in your circumstances and the job that you're going to do. The second aspect to all of that was, without doubt, it gave you a sense of status. So I was extremely proud to be an army officer, a British army officer. Um, you know, I would, uh, you know, frankly swank about in my skin-tight mess dress. You know, it's hard to imagine now, but, you know, that's what we did. Um, and it was, you know, you, you did feel different because going through Sandhurst, getting the commission, you know, joining your regiment with all the history and the kudos that comes with that, getting an extraordinary amount of responsibility at a, at a young age, actually. When I think of the early operational tours that I had, 21, 22, or whatever, you realise in hindsight, you know, how uh, much responsibility you were holding then, even if you didn't quite appreciate it at the time. And so that combination of being really clear about the purpose, being confident in everything to allow you to do that, alongside the personal status and sense that you were in something that was quite special. So, 10 years in the army, tell us what happened then. I thought I was set up for life. So... Um, I had got uh, an 18-year commission, so I was 10 years into an 18-year commission on the basis then that you often, if you get to a certain rank, you can then continue to, to extend. And I was the adjutant, uh, I'd done a number of jobs, Northern Ireland and elsewhere, that had served me very well. Um, and then we had what was a very positive thing for the world, we won the Cold War. So the Iron Curtain came down, and... There was a thing called um, Options for Change, which was flagged up as the peace dividend, which essentially meant they could cut the armed forces. So uh, the government decided to reduce the army by 47,000 over a period of uh, three years. And unfortunately, I was one of those 47,000. And so I was made redundant. Um, and nobody, I mean, I have to say, you know, if you closed down an industry with 47,000 people being laid off over three years, there would be hell to play. You know, I mean, it would be on every national paper, etc., etc. 
But those times, it was firstly a celebration that we could hopefully look forward to a more peaceful time. And secondly, because it was the military and it was drifted out over three years, it really didn't have, it had an impact on the military, but it didn't really get the headlines or anything of that kind. Personally, um, I found it really, uh, it was a huge blow. I mean, for all the, all the things that I've stated about the sense that, um, you know, you feel that you're doing a fantastic job, the public purse has invested 10 years in your leadership development. You think that you've got a career ahead of you. And then suddenly they're saying, well, thanks very much, but we don't need you anymore. And um, so my world was rocked. By that stage, uh, I'd got married. My wife comes from Shropshire as well. But, of course, it, we'd moved house various times with the army, you know, as an expectation. So her profession, you know, had to take second place. And we moved around. Your social life's in the army, your house is in the army, you know, everything's the army. And, uh, and I was devastated, I genuinely was devastated. And, um, and I know a lot of other of my colleagues were as well. So that, those were the circumstances. And then I had to sort of think to myself, well, what am I going to be now? One of the first decisions, which was really critical, was that, and I say we because it wasn't just me, and my wife and I sat down because she could tell how shocking this was for me. There was no doubt about that. But I suppose in a way there may even have been a bit of a relief on her side because we had spent a lot of time apart. We'd been moving, we'd moved house three times in three years of married life and things of that kind. Um, and we made a joint decision. Given the fact that we both came from Shropshire and both our families were there, we thought that actually it'd be quite nice that if we were going to start to raise a family, we'd raise it near both our families. And so we decided to make what we termed life choices, not career choices. So bearing in mind, I'd spent 10 years doing exactly what I was told and going for the job everywhere. We thought, OK, so where do we want to live? And then let's think about what we do. And as I alluded to earlier, most of our, my contemporaries and my friends amongst them, young captains coming out of that time, use the old regimental network, would go straight into the city have a big salary, get a Porsche. If they hadn't got a girlfriend, get a girlfriend. And it was all set up for life. That's how it was. And, um, and we decided to do entirely the opposite. So we thought, right, my wife, who's a biomedical scientist, uh, she was able to get a job in Chester. I had finished my career in the Cheshire Regiment, so we knew a lot of people up there, not far from Shropshire. Great. And I chose to go and work at a university-based uh, charity and medical institute at Liverpool and uh, my friends thought I was mad they couldn't believe it they said well, if you're going to work in Liverpool for a charity you're not going to come with us and work in the city but that was a great choice actually as it turned out and I think the most important thing that I learned during that period of time was that I had to actually focus on what I was going to be not what I had been so going back into Cheshire um, the Cheshire regiment had a territorial regiment there. One of my friends was the commanding officer of that regiment. And he said to, he said to, to me, he said, oh, join the TA, you know, come in, you'll get a company, etc., etc." And I thought, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. I, I have to turn my back on the military now. It was a great, I learned a fantastic amount from it. I've got great friendships. But I'm not going to try and keep one foot in that camp where I've got to try and build a new direction. So I turned my, my back on that. Uh, and focused on trying to reinvent myself, I suppose. And so tell us then about um, Liverpool and, mm. and the beginning mm. of your charity and philanthropic work. Yeah, so I remember getting this job, which was had a grand title, Development Director. 
And then obviously it's a lesson for reading between the lines of job descriptions, I think, because actually when I got there, I realized it was fundraiser and I hadn't sort of clocked that at all. But what I did find was that I really enjoyed and was quite good at being able to communicate an issue or communicate a project to, to people and therefore raise money and raise support. So the first couple of years, this was a medical research organization that focused on the use of laser technology and light therapies, which was quite radical at the time. And it was spread across several hospitals in Liverpool and several departments uh, in Liverpool University. And I found that I was able to raise money and raise support. I suppose for the first time I got an understanding of why businesses would support things. So I'd start working with pharmaceutical companies and building the bridges between the university and them and things of that kind. And then after a couple of years, I became the chief executive and we funded a big institute. Um, and that was really a great sort of landing because I was starting to see that I could apply the skills of communication, the skills of appreciating a problem and coming up with a solution into an alternative sort of profession. Um, and I was doing that job. That was, was great. I also loved Liverpool, actually. And then I fell for something, which was the uh, Tony Blair initiative. <laughs> but uh, but uh, there's always a good ending. You've got to look on the positive side. There was an initiative at that time called the Modernisation of Local Government. I don't know if everybody here remembers this. But Tony Blair, a great idea, I think, was thinking that he should try and encourage the recruitment of non-local government people into local authorities to try and bring, I suppose, new perspectives and things of that kind. And uh, during one of the processes, I, I somehow came onto the radar and I was approached and I ended up working for a northern city council. I'm not going to go any further detail of that, but I spent two years in a situation which was just not cut out for me at all. It was, the, I, I genuinely say, it's the worst work environment that I've ever been in. And why is that? Describe how it was. Um, so I knew this would be of interest to you, <laughs> all about happiness. So I hope it's a damn sight happier than it was when I was there. Um, so I think there was a combination of things. Firstly, and in line, I suppose, with the Tony Blair government perspective, uh, the local authority, certainly that I was in, had attracted people of, a, I suppose, a certain ilk. And it had bred a culture which was, I suppose, entirely at the opposite end of the culture that I like. So I'm most happy where it's an entrepreneurial dynamic culture where you can see opportunities or see an issue and try and resolve that. Whereas actually what I found in local authority was, was a bureaucratic nightmare. It was an, an authority that actually had no overarching political uh, leadership either. It was hung between three parties, so it wasn't even between two. And so therefore to progress anything you had to lobby through each of the three parties and then sometimes what were great initiatives um, I had experience of getting everybody, all the political leaders to agree something, and it was a great initiative, there was no downside, it was for public benefit. Um, and then when it got to committee, one of the political parties just decided that they had agreed too much, they decided they had to disagree with something and change their opinion and just stopped it. And I, and I just found myself, therefore, so frustrated in not being able to progress things. And equally, what I found was that people... And they were good people. I'm not trying to knock them as individuals, but some of the individuals there had worked for decades and decades. There was no doubt they had a huge knowledge of the way in which a local authority worked. They had a huge knowledge of their location, but they had no external experience at all. 
And in fact, I was shocked to find that one of my colleagues had actually started, I mean, this is a story in my mind, he'd started work at that local authority the year I'd been born. Now, you know, I was, that means he'd been there 35 years, and I just thought, this is extraordinary. Because, yes, if you wanted to know what happened, you know, in 1978, you went to him. But goodness me, if you wanted to know what was going to happen tomorrow or try and change what was going to happen tomorrow, do something, it was an impossibility. So I found that a, a, a great struggle. And I think that within, a, within two years, I, I mean, I had gone mad. I, I knew I had to get out. Well, within a few months, actually, it took me two years to get out. But, but I also know, I think there were three of us recruited in through this process. Um, and I don't think any of us survived much longer than that. So where next? When I was in the charity, when I was running the charity, fun enough, um, I came across an organisation that Mark, you chaired and you know very, very well, um, Business in the Community. And in those early days, I had come up with an idea uh, in Liverpool to, with the Chamber of Commerce to create what you would recognise as pro-help, the professional firms giving pro bono support to local charities. And with the Chamber of Commerce, I'd started to set something like that up, and, and BITC had come in in that way. And also, as a charity, we had had secondees in from Barclays Bank and Marks and Spencers through a BITC programme to help on the university work and things of that kind. So I saw them as a great organisation. And I then came across, you know, being proactive in terms of saying what jobs are out there that I can go to. I saw the BITC was advertising for a Northwest Regional Director. I thought, this is it. This is great. And so I applied for the job. I had, uh, I think there were three interviews. The final interview was with the extraordinary Julia Cleverdon of Boots headquarters in Nottingham. Um, and, uh, and I was very fortunate to get that job. And, and the, the good thing about the city council, uh, you know, to put that in perspective, was that I actually think because my remit in the city council included regeneration programmes and external funded programmes, European funding and central government funding, that sort of qualified me to get through onto the shortlist. I think that helped. Uh, so I did get some benefit from the city council experience, and that's was the first step into BITC. And then how did you enjoy business in the community? So I love BITC. Um, it, it, I always put it as the 10 years alongside the 10 years in the army. It was incredible. Those were the two fantastic experiences I've ever had. In the Northwest to start with, I had the really great advantage of, 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 of taking over. I didn't realize it at the time, but I took over the failing region. Um, Dame Julia always used to say there's always one region that's not operating particularly well, and it happened that I inherited the Northwest. Uh, we were losing members, we were losing money, it was all going pear-shaped. Well, there's only one way from that, you know, which is up, which is great. Um, and so we did some remarkable things. It was things that you'll appreciate, Mark. Uh, the foot and mouth crisis hit very much just as I arrived. So His Royal Highness Prince of Wales, um, president of, of business in the community, was spending a lot of time in Lancashire and Cumbria particularly, so I started organising a lot of the seniors believing visits for him up there. Um, we had to respond to what was a catastrophic situation for the, for the rural economies up there, not just the farmers but everybody else. I also was able to create uh, a big sort of surge in new membership and it was really what I realised straight on was that actually BITC up there was not really reflecting what BITC was down here in London. 
So I come down for our monthly meetings, or I come down to some of the big events, the Awards for Excellence and conferences and things like this, and I thought, here you get a sense of business working together, a membership, a movement, uh, people are sparking off each other, they're being collaborative. Up in the northwest region, there, were, there was no convening done at all. There was nothing sparking that. It was all very linear, the relationship. So even though we had great companies, British Nuclear Fuels, United Utilities, the co-op movement, people like that, they never had any contact with each other. So I thought, well, what I've got to do is to create the spark that I see in London around these events and put them up into the northwest. So we created a big conference. Uh, we had people like Digby Jones and people like that coming up. Um, we created then the regional awards event. People started to feel they were a part of something, a part of this great movement. And of course, the impact of that was that we were able to get more activity in some of the tough areas in the northwest. So those areas of deprivation across cities, across some of those Lancashire towns, the Burnleys, the Blackburns, the Boltons, uh, Withenshaw in Manchester, we were able to put people on the ground, get business engaged. And I spent four years doing that, and I was very uh, happy with the fact that we had turned the region round. I had a tremendous team of people. Uh, I was really, probably the proudest thing I had was the BIC at the time did a workshop, uh, a workplace survey done by Mori, um, where they assessed the whole of BITC. And when they came to present to the executive team the results, I was staggered but delighted. They stood up and said, well, actually, there's one set of results we've got to spin out, which is the Northwest region. They didn't know it was me there. The Northwest region is off the scale in terms of da-da-da-da-da-da. It's the highest standard that you could expect in any commercial organisation. I was so proud of that because the people that I'd been able to retain and the people that I'd been able to recruit had forged themselves into an extraordinary team. And so that was, that was a great time. And um, after that, John, so obviously now you've got the bug. You, you know that mm. doing things for charity, doing things that have a sense of purpose and value yeah. to them yeah. are what drives you. So what came next? Ten years at BITC? Well, yeah, so, so I was fortunate. So I did the four years there, and then I was actually getting headhunted by the Regional Development Agency. And um, I'm always pretty honest and open about these things. I told Julia, and she said, oh, darling, you're not doing that at all. <laughs> and uh, so she created a job for me, which I really couldn't turn down. So she said, come down and take over the Prince's programmes. So the Prince of Wales, as you know, had a particular interest around certain initiatives which he's either sparked and created, like the Prince's Royal Action Programme, which grew out of the work up in the northwest of the foot and mouth, etc., or things like the Seniors Believing Programme, which he'd had for many years. I also then was able to come down and take over this collection. And that gave me that second period of, of learning because I would be the person trying to respond to the Prince's concerns. So I set up a fishing project up in South Shields and things like this. Well, it meant then again that I was going to places. I was going into mosques. I was going to homeless centres. I was going around these places and trying to look at solutions. So that was a great period, another six years doing that. Um, but the, the thing that I take from there, uh, certainly all credit to the people, the business leaders in the team, all credit to the people that were actually driving BITC at that time. The, the reason it reflected so much my experience in the military was that we had absolute clarity of purpose, in my view. We knew exactly what we were trying to do. We had lots of sub-initiatives, but the reality was we were trying to affect change in our society through the power of business. And the ability to see how that could work and see the impact across a whole many sets of agendas was tremendous. And that was really inspiring. 
I did get a little bit disillusioned at the end. Um, and the reason for that was not necessarily what was happening in the IFC. I had had also the fortune of setting up Mosaic, which is a great Muslim initiative. That was also very interesting. But it was around 2008 and the financial crisis. And I remember going to one of our great awards events at the Albert Hall, Prince of Wales in attendance, big tick as it's known, being given out to companies. And again, without mentioning some of the names, some of those companies getting the big ticks for their workplace initiative or their mentoring scheme or their diversity or their community outreach were actually the organisations that had been so dire in terms of their activities on the trading floors and things of this kind. And I think my time 10 years was, was enough. And I think that, you know, change in leadership, change in direction, it was time for me to try and and move on and think what the next stage was. But I also started to think, well, what's the next stage from corporate social responsibility? Because actually, these things have had an impact, but they've been peripheral to the decision-making in a business, the incentivization of how people behave, the bonuses and all this and the other, entirely irrelevant, or rather the CSR actually is entirely irrelevant to that in many of these companies. There's got to be something else out there. And I thought, well, what haven't I done? You know, you get to a point in life and you think, right, what's the next thing on the list? And I thought, well, you know, actually, my parents were great business people and my grandparents were great business people. I've never actually set up a business, so why don't I try and do that? And so I thought I would set up an agency which would have three groups of clients. The first group would be corporates, and I would see whether not corporates were at all interested in exploring where we could take the CSR agenda further. The second group would be high net worth philanthropists, because I had a number of interesting connections in that space. And the third would be non-profits, looking at getting support and access to those two groups. And I wondered if that would sort of work. And I was very fortunate that uh, I was able to get some great clients to start with, uh, and, and not least the first person that said, I'm going to, I don't know what we're going to do, but you're, I'm going to be your first client, was the Prince of Wales, which was unheard of made a few private secretaries fall off their seats slightly, I suspect. But, um, but we were able to, to build that little business. And after a couple of years, we started to use this purpose language. And we started to see the evolution of a new sense with other business leaders like yourselves thinking, well, actually, we've got now to look at the next development of this. And during that time, I started to look as well at well, where, where, not only where we're going, but where we come from. And I think it's reflective and useful to look at the change over the last 100 years. If you go back to 100 years and the great companies like your own old company and others, they started with individuals who were very philanthropic in their mind. So you had effectively the start of corporate philanthropy. People would make money and they would give it away. And, uh, and then you saw the development of corporate community investment and corporate community involvement, which is, I suppose, in the very early 80s. And then you saw the evolution of CSR, then you had sustainability come in, and it's a sort of curve of change in business, but there's also societal change. So the expectation on business from society is very different to what it even was 10 years ago, 20 or 30. And so it's a case where you're saying, well, what's next on that curve? How do you do that? And I think the development and the growth of this sense that a business should understand why it exists and its why should be about a contribution to people and all the planet. It should be solving an issue for people because that's effectively the market. And it should do that based on ethics and values. That's now accepted. And it's been tremendous to see the developments over the last few years on that. I now head up a consortium of agencies at Omnicom, all driven around 
providing for our clients, both corporates and causes, purposeful solutions around their strategy and communications. I had um, a great meeting of minds, really, in terms of the people within the business that were looking at how they would meet their own client needs. So this is driven, of course, by people in the marketplace thinking, we need advice, we need solutions. They were thinking where they could get some of that expertise from. But what I found, and what has proven to be the case, was it was the value set and the enthusiasm and, the, and, the, and what really makes people tick that took me into Omnicom as opposed to a couple of others that were also sort of coming around asking questions at the same time. So from my perspective, we've had our operation running in the UK uh, for about 18 months. It was already in the US. It's been going for about four years in the US. So we're a little bit behind the curve, but we like to think we're perhaps a little bit ahead of the curve on some of our purposeful thinking. Um, but driving that forward and actually also driving forward and hoping that our impact through our businesses will mean that generally, you know, this now becomes the accepted norm for business going forward. Great. Well, we, we wish you uh, every success in spreading okay. that message. And what we're going to do now is we're going to measure your workplace Right. So this is the Engaging work, Workplace Happiness Survey. It's available to people all over the world. Uh, tens and tens of thousands of people have taken the survey. Right. And at the end of it, uh, John, what we'll be able to do is to measure your workplace happiness against uh, other Yes, knowing my language and skills. Then, and then if you, can, um, if you can just read out the question and then give a score and tell right. me what score you've given yourself. Okay, so do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? And yes, I would, I would totally agree on that. Uh, I think that you get to a certain... I mean, I'm, I'm going to give it a 10. I mean, I'd, I'm actually you know, very content in that regard, so I don't think it's a problem. And is there anywhere in your career where you don't think you were properly paid or rewarded for what you did? Um, actually, most soldiers will say when they were soldiering. <laughs> so um, I think that probably the military always have a slightly um, have a view, but actually I don't, you know, genuinely, I've always been very content. Yeah. Okay. Are you happy with your working hours? Well, yeah, so one thing that I should explain is that when I moved to Omnicom, I chose to go down to four days a week. So I do quite a, a few charitable and philanthropic things. And I also obviously have written a book and maybe writing some other things. So occasionally I do some articles, etc. So having that capacity to do four days was very good. And because I live some distance away from Shropshire, uh, I wanted to uh, have an arrangement where my expectation in London was not necessarily those four. So I normally have that flexibility of being at home on a Monday working three days in London, and Friday's the day I do other things. So from my perspective, I'm very fortunate to have that balance of working hours. I'm very happy to, gosh, I can't keep putting 10, but I'm going to on this because I couldn't be happier than that. Do you feel recognised when you do something well? It's interesting because, I mean, it is different to the other question, isn't it? So I think that one of the things about recognition, particularly in the role that one has now, is that, of course, you're... Recognition for much of what we do is actually part of what you're providing for the other people, the client. And, and actually, if you look at the career that I've had for many years as well, sometimes creating some of the initiatives that I've created, actually the whole point has not been to get the recognition because you've built that on a partnership that requires the recognition to go to somebody else, to be perfectly blunt. 
Um, but I think that what we've got now is that certainly in my current, if we're talking about my current situation, then, then yes. I mean, I think the contribution that I'm able to make, particularly to the younger dynamic teams, is very much appreciated by those individuals. So the, the structure that we have is that when a client comes to us, we take the talent from across our agencies and create a specific team to meet that need. And part of my role is to make sure that that team can form and bond together, that the client is content with it and we manage it in that sort of way. And interestingly, I think that we have had situations where uh, certainly the clients have recognised, they've recognised the quality of the value of, of what we're doing, but also the, the teams themselves recognise that we're operating in a new way, we're outside the normal ways in which we operate, so they appreciate perhaps the older steady hand that can come in from time to time and calm things down or whatever. So I, I won't carry on putting tens in because that's ridiculous, but um, um, do you have enough information to do your job well? Uh, actually, I'm going to have a score lower on this. From a personal perspective, the information that I have around the subject matter, etc., uh, I keep myself informed and obviously the teams that I work with are sucking information in, we're assessing what's happening in the marketplace. One of the challenges of working in a very big organisation like our own, so we have 4,500 people in our office bank side, we're over 100,000 worldwide, is that I know that there would be great work that I could do with my teams if only we knew what the agency across the corridor was actually doing. So because the holding company obviously has agency structures, and agencies themselves contain their relationships, contain their client confidentiality, etc. Sometimes it can be hard to see some of the opportunities to do some really good work. That information um, is really kept in the, in the agencies, and I'm not quite sure how within the structure that we have that can be best shared, because it requires somebody in the agency to realise that their way of solving conundrum would be to go and find somebody else in a different organisation. So I think there is a, there's a bit of an issue there. So I, I think that it's purely the information on what clients are requiring and the opportunities that are out there that we don't serve so well, uh, don't score so well on. So I think that um, I would say, I might give that a six. I think that's not being too harsh, but makes sense of that. Do you feel information is openly shared? <laughs> well, uh, put aside the last remark. Um, yes, I mean, generally, we are good within our own setup of sharing information. So we know what we're doing within our consortium. And so that is good. Uh, I think that I can't, however, put that into isolation of the fact that we don't really easily share information, not because of any ill will, just because of the way we're structured. So, so I think I'll put that as a seven. It'll be slightly higher, but not necessarily as good as it could be. Uh, I am, yes, I'm fully empowered to make decisions, perhaps not over the things that always, uh, you know, I can't solve the information issue, for example, but I, I will say a nine on, on that. I'm very happy with that. I'm certainly trusted to make decisions. I don't have an issue with that at all, so I'm going to put a nine there as well. Um, do you have the resources you need to do your job well? Now, this is an interesting one because within all the teams that I've talked about, we definitely have scale and we have the talent and we have the 
practical resources in terms of facilities, etc. But I think that we could certainly be doing better if we had probably, um, it's, a, it's a slightly, I'm trying to think how I could best describe this. There's almost a physical aspect, which is, sounds slightly odd. So because the consortium that I have is spread over various agencies, we aren't, we aren't even on one floor, we're not even in one building. So bizarrely, if, if you were to say what resources, and I would include in that the built environment, then I'd love to be able to have everybody within an environment where you could have a greater exchange of ideas and information. It goes back to that information challenge. Um, but, so it's a, little bit, uh, it's a little bit odd, that one. I'm not sure if I've interpreted that the right way, because we have a lot of resources, just that the resource, um, and, and it is a, it, it's available when we need it, but it's the environment that I'm talking about there. Did I scroll that in this, Mark? Is that OK? Okay, well, I'll put that as a, a six. Ah, <laughs> well, the next question is, are you happy with your work environment? So generally, yes, very smart offices. We have fantastic facilities, great welfare, etc. Uh, but I do think that if we had the ability to have either a, a hub where people could um, be based or a hub where we could uh, even convene in a certain way, where actually we could share information permanently. So the nature, again, of our environment, our offices are splendid, but there isn't a particular point where I could, for example, put some information on a board in the knowledge that people would see it. <laughs> you know, so actually, whether or not someone could have a pod or something, which was a purpose pod, that would be a tremendous thing. I've just invented it. I don't know if I'll get that through anyway. So I think there could be an improvement in the work environment, and it's all about locality, it's all about co-location, and it's about, again, the exchange of information. But I will, but generally it is a tremendous working environment, so I think I'm going to score it higher and say it's an eight. Do you feel your views are heard at work? They are certainly. Um, the one thing I suppose which is a slight challenge is that I answer into Madison Avenue, which is a long way away. And so my views are heard, and they're certainly heard in you know, the UK and the region that I cover. I suppose trying to articulate essentially to Americans who feel exactly the same as us, but just don't necessarily have the appreciation of what it is in, happening in society here at this time or what's happening with business at this time or even in the not-for-profit space, that can be a little bit more of a challenge to, to make that message heard remotely. So I think there is a little bit of a caveat there just in terms of the type of things that come out of the US um, that sometimes perhaps could have been a little bit more refined or something of that kind for our markets here. So I think I'll put that as an eight, but I'm, um, I don't know that I'm being too low there, but I think that's a good score to, to have there. Certainly the organisation cares for well-being, and I think it's what I've found in the last uh, couple of years or so is that actually the best way, I think, to see whether or not they care about you is to see whether or not they care about other people, you know, even though I haven't had a sense that I need to be concerned about. They may be concerned for me in different ways, but I don't have a need to feel concerned. I can see that the organisation cares for other people, so I'm going to, I'm going to give that the top mark of 10. It's very caring. Um, do you rarely feel depressed? Oh, I rarely... That's an odd way of question. That's an odd way that's question. I'm sure it's there for a reason. I don't really feel depressed... Anxious is an interesting word. 
my sense on this is if this is about something which negatively affects you as an individual. And I, I don't feel negatively affected by the way I think about my work. But if you were to ask my wife, she would say I'm a, a natural worrier. I worry about everything. And I think in an odd sort of way, it, it, it sort of motivates me to think, anticipate the problems. So I'm not anxious, but I'm always worrying about the fact, are we not doing enough? Are we getting this right? Are we doing that and the other? But it doesn't negatively affect me. It's just the way in which I am. So, so to answer this question, do you rarely feel depressed? The answer is yes, but I'm not quite... So I agree with that. That's a high score, isn't it? I don't often... Yes. Let me say nine, because I think it's natural that we always have a degree of that. Do you feel you do something worthwhile? I do. I think... What, is, um, what, I, what I put into context here is that I look at everything in the round. So I, have, I don't quite have the division between my professional and my personal things. They're all too entwined because actually my entire life is about doing philanthropic stuff and helping people in a certain way, which feeds my purpose. And what I do as a, in a business is to try and help people in a certain way, which is feeding my purpose. So they're very entwined, and I do feel that I'm making some degree of positive contribution. I mean, I defined my purpose, because I haven't said it, is to help people maximise their potential for good. And therefore, I realised some time on that actually, for me to feel that I'm doing something worthwhile, is that I can have a conversation with an individual and they'll go away and think, yes, I can do something more. Or I go into a company and a company can think that it can change the way it impacts in society. So that gives me the sense of worthwhile. And that's what I have the advantage of doing in this, in this role. So, again, I'm going to stop scoring 10s because I think that's getting a bit ridiculous. So I'm going to say 9, but I absolutely feel that I'm making a contribution in that way. Do you feel proud to work for your organisation? I do. Um, I do on the basis that we've made you know, a big commitment around changing the way in which we hope to work with business. So... One of the concerns that I had going from my own little operation where I could, effectively the values that I had were the values of the business. Uh, maximum number of people I had, to put it into scale, was nine individuals, but many of them, had, well, all of them bought into that philosophy. Many of them had worked at BITC before, um, but everybody that was in that had the same sense of values and all the rest of it. So the most critical thing for me was that I was proud of the little organisation I had and I was very proud of the work that we did. So we worked with great clients from the World Wildlife Fund through to Axina Bell to Virgin Atlantic and people of that kind. It's great. Coming into an organisation like this where you go from being the sort of big fish in a tiny, tiny pond to a tiny fish in a massive pond where the values and all the rest of it are there, if you're going to be proud of the organisation, then I think that's got to be based on the fact that you're doing good work that you're doing it with people that you'd feel proud to be associated with, and that that is having an impact, and I, and I do. Uh, and I know that when I was going through the interview process with Omnicom, I said, actually, there's three criteria for this to work. It's the criteria that I do about how I work now, which is that I won't work on clients or businesses that I don't think are actually having a genuine desire to do good in the world. So I just won't do it. And that means that actually, if you're trying to get me to work on selling more tins of baked beans just for the sake of selling tins of baked beans, I'm just not interested. It's just not, life's too short and I'm getting old. The second criteria is that I, I actually will only really work with clients where I think that will take and, and pitch into clients where I think that we're going to add something to something they can't do themselves. I'm not just there to take money and try and 
convince people that they need us, we have to actually contribute something. So I said, yes, 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 we agree with that. And the third, I said, and to be honest, I'm so old now, I'm not going to work with people I can't get on with. And, and they laughed. And I said, no, I'm serious. If I don't get on with you or I can't get on, I just can't afford the time anymore. And so we provide. So actually all these things have aligned. So I've got to give it a high score and I'll give it another nine because I think that it is a great organisation. And what's really makes me proud, I have to say, is the younger teams because, you know, I go in there and there's a lot of younger people there, but the passion and interest that they bring around the projects is fantastic. How likely are you to recommend your friends and family to work at your organisation? Yes, I would, and so I'll score that highly. I'll score that as a nine. Do you feel you are treated with respect? I am. If only for my age, I think. <laughs> I don't think I'll say I'll, I'll put that to nine. I think, I, I mean, one of the funny things I say is that because the building is so young, I mean, when I go in, I think the average age goes up by 20 years. And if I'm wearing a suit, then, you know, I get in a lift, everybody gets quiet. So I don't know if that's respect or if it's just, you know, who is this man? But what I do, uh, what I can say is that I think people recognise that I've got an experience in this particular area, which is different to those that have come through the agency background. So people that are our generation uh, in the agencies have normally spent their entire career in that space. And they're really keen on this stuff and they're really got great values and they're great colleagues to work with but I think they recognise the fact that although I don't quite understand everything that they understand equally they don't quite understand everything that I understand so that's a great sort of merging of those two experiences uh, do you enjoy your job yes I absolutely enjoy my job um, so I'm going to score that a 10 and there's no reason why I wouldn't say anything less than that the next question is do you feel you have a good relationship with your line manager uh, I, have a, I have a great relationship with my line manager. The, I think I alluded it, to it earlier. The challenge is he's a long way away. So one of the things which, uh, you know, one of the things which I would really like to have more time is to, to build further that relationship. And I think we, we have a very good relationship because we invested a lot of time both, on both sides of the Atlantic when I first came in. And by some strange coincidence, we both have the same birthday, even though I'm about 15 or 16 years older than him. But, but he is a tremendous uh, CEO of an agency and the global managing partner of 100. And we have a very full, trusted relationship. He's from a very different background to, to my own. I think we very much respect what we've both achieved and we have a good relationship. But I think my regret is that uh, we do have months that go by where we don't actually talk to each other. So yes, we emails all the time, but it's not quite the same. But from the relationship perspective, certainly, um, I, I wouldn't fault that. Uh, and I hope he'd say the same, actually. Yeah. That was a 10. Yeah, that was a 10, sorry. Do you feel you're being developed? The, the development that I have now is actually through the work that I do and the teams that I work with. So there, there are... Omnicom, for example, has an Omnicom university where they take their future managers and leaders uh, at a certain level through that. It's run, I think, with Harvard in the US, and people go to that. And I know that the agencies themselves invest a lot in the training and development within the organisation. Uh, that isn't something that I'm involved in, but what I do find in terms of my own personal development is that actually I've learned so much in the last two and a half years working with different agencies. So if I look at the different teams we have in 100, 
for example, if I look at the digital teams that make and build apps and websites and things of that kind, then obviously going in with clients and building projects for them, inevitably I'm learning from the technicians, the practitioners, the young leaders that are leading those. Equally, again, working with the PR agencies where you're seeing the way in which different things are happening in society from influencers to uh, the challenges around what is fake news and all of this. And I'm constantly being developed by exposure to what's happening with the agencies. But, I, but I, I, I'm not on some sort of formal development. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure there is development at that level, frankly, when we get to our level. But, but I think that there is, a, I'll score that as an, well, I'll score that as a seven because there is no formal development. I think it's a case of one is constantly growing by having an inquiring mind. You know, and I always admit the fact that I know nothing about these worlds, so that's the way you learn. Do you feel happy at work? Yes. Ten again, I'm afraid to say. I shouldn't apologise for it. What three changes would improve your workplace happiness? So, well, actually, the first one that I would put in would be more contact with my boss. So uh, I type this in. Yeah. More contact with my line manager. The second... Well, I think I'd go back to that, that hub, that, uh, what do I call it, the purpose sort of pod or whatever. I think that if there was, how should I describe it? So a, um, a central purpose. Working space. I'm, I'm checking my spelling. <laughs> my my <laughs> central <laughs> purpose, or more than this meeting place, actually. Yeah, where, because the same, you know, just a, a gathering place would be great. Gosh, I, I mean, we, we have a tremendous physical environment, that's fine. I think in terms of the way in which we work dynamically, can I put the information in there? Information would go into that as well. So I think uh, increased access to information, and that's relating to the understanding of what people are working on, because that's just a, a bit of a challenge which we could try and address. And do I... Oh, I see. Right. Oh, there we go. Next. So you've answered all the questions there. So these are the filter questions. So what these do is they compare you to people who look like you. Right. So firstly, gender. So male, age range, I am 55 to 64. I'm management. The next question is, which job from this list most reflects you, what you do? So we are in marketing. I mean, I've done a few of these in military and things like that, but it's actually marketing and communications now. Yeah, is that... So this is the job that you do. So this is more... Oh. So you, I think you were at the top CEO. Oh, I see. Yeah. So that's... Yeah, chairman CEO is what the... On the and then card. this is what sector that you're in. Ah, oh, I see. So, so which there are industry? a number of options that you could probably choose from, but um, you find comms and uh, advertising. Yeah. So there's marketing and advertising, and, and that is what uh, you know. That is what we are. So I'll yeah. click that. Which country, ethnicity, white? And that's it. Oh, I'm finished. So okay. what happens now is that your numbers are crunched. Um, almost instantaneously. That's very quick. This is the beauty. Companies and individuals get the results straight away. So, John, uh, your score out of 1,000 is? 861. And the um, global average is? Uh, 647. So uh, the, the global score is 647. Now, what yep. will be interesting is when we scroll down, what Ooh. this shows you is against six different sets of criteria how you score. So on reward and recognition, you're 97%. On empowerment, you're 90%. On well-being, you're 90%. On instilling pride, you're 90%. On job satisfaction, you're 80%. All remarkably high. Right. There's only one area 
mm. where you score in ember and it's yes. on information so this is about information being shared with you you having information to do your job uh, as effectively as you can so uh, if you were doing this now and had the time if you click on here it starts giving you some information about what you might want to do to improve that provision of information yeah. and then we have a whole series of matrices so the first one is um, well-being where you score highly if you score poorly on well-being we uh, encourage you to go and take the NHS um, anxiety right. and depression test and that um, gives you advice on what to do if you score poorly and what we do here is we rank you to your industry which just shown here um, and uh, you're off the chart for your well-being. Oh, I see. Gosh. And then you're off the chart again for, uh, this is called the stickiness index. Right. What this does is measures how likely you are to leave your job and go <laughs> elsewhere. So you're off the chart. Right. And there you can see where the global is and the industry is. Um, yes, gosh. Right. So if we keep going down. The next is called Apostles and Anarchists. What this measures is how likely you are to either promote where you work yeah. or detract from where you work. And right. again, you're very much an apostle. And you can see that, by and large, people are also apostles of work. Mm, About a third of people score down here. They're anarchists. They wouldn't recommend where they work. They um, don't like their job. Gosh. They wouldn't advise their friends and families to work oh, there. So when you're in this box, we, we start thinking something. about you should probably think about doing something else. Definitely. Yes. Um, after that, you get um, a career developer. This is whether you feel you're being developed in your career. Right. And again, you score highly, as you did for the vast majority of questions. Uh, this is your inclusiveness index. The, the inclusiveness index is whether you feel that you are involved and included in your workplace. Now, here your score does touch industry and globally. Yes. You scored less high. Yes. And this is really about information. I felt right. they could give me more information. Yes. Other aspects of it, like feeling empowered, uh, you scored higher on. Right. So this is your empowerment index. So this is where you um, feel in terms of being empowered to do your job uh, against others. And if you scored lowly on this, if you were down in this mm. uh, group down here, what we would do is give you advice about what you might choose to do to feel more empowered, what conversations you might have. Yes. We recommend podcasts and videos and other things to watch. Right. This is your sense of purpose. <laughs> Hooray! Well, thank goodness I'm in the right quadrant for and, this. I mean, the reason that we give this is, like right. you, we believe that it's very mm. important that people work have a mm. sense of purpose about what they do. And I'm delighted to say you score well above both the industry and the global right. average. The last uh, matrix we have is about workplace environment. Again, John, you score very highly. But what we try to show, again, for an organisation is that you might well have some cohorts that aren't very happy with their organisation. Yes. So we worked with one particular company where we found that um, uh, there was a huge divide between men and women in terms of workplace environment. Right. And what we found was that it was the lose. Yeah. Ultimately, it boiled down to... Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how, how nice the lose was. Yeah. And then what you do is if you want to, you can create your own free account and then that looks at every single question and compares you on every question to right. people that yeah. look like you in your industry, etc. Right. Et so, Gosh. John, well done. Huge, <laughs> a huge score. Uh, to get 86% uh, is um, remarkably high. Well, <laughs> I almost feel sorry that I haven't created a more interesting pattern. 
Yeah, it I almost think, seems a little bit embarrassing, actually. No, no, well, but, well, I, th- I think what's interesting is that for, for everybody, there's some aspect of what they do at work yeah. that isn't working well. Mm. And so by taking the survey, what you discover mm. is that in your instance, there's something about information and mm. how information is provisioned. There's something about environment and grouping of people and how that works. Mm. And... And so what we hope to do for every individual is just guide them to something that if they were to action it in a very deliberate way. And the other thing you can do with this is you can share this with your line manager Mm. so people can uh, whiz it off to friends to say, look, I've just done this. Here's something I'd like to talk to you about when we next have a meeting because I think that my workplace happiness is going to be improved if we just did this, this or this. Well, it's tremendous, Mark, and thank you for putting me through the mill in this, I suppose. Um, I'm glad I came out in the right end. But uh, no, I think it's fascinating, and I think the detail and the breakdown, and as you say, it's identified from my perspective that sort of aspect, which is not in any way damaging to an extreme perspective, but necessarily is the sort of niggling thing that perhaps could be better. So, you know, we can certainly take that back and sort of say, well, yes. And then the very last question, John. If you were to nominate one person take the workplace happiness survey who would it be um within my own organization do you anybody, mean, or do you mean anybody Gosh. anybody within your organization or outside ah goodness me um well i would be i think i'm going to go back and see if i can nominate and get my my line manager in in america to do it so um i you know i think i'm going to send him this and see if he can get off the chart as well i'm not quite sure that's the way it should be done but, um, but I think that I, I would like to see more people do this because I, I think the value that you can see and demonstrate, the more information one has to try and analyse why you feel something has got to be good. Mm. And I'm a great believer, you know, for all of our sakes, we should be spending, when we spend most of our time or a great proportion of our time, should be a place we're happy. Mm. And, uh, and this type of analysis can either show you something you haven't recognised or can help inform you something that you know but don't know how to resolve. So I think this is a tremendous tool. Thank, thank you. you, John. That's very kind of mm. you. And um, thank you for doing the Workplace Happiness. No, it's uh, been a pleasure. I'm, I'm smiling, as you can see. So that's great. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.